There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the July. You are tuned into the Power Chord Hour. Thanks for tuning in, whether you were listening to the radio show on 107.9 WRFA or listening on the Power Chord Hour podcast. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I'm your host, Anthony Merchant, and today our guest on this one is Chris Rent of iconic label Bridge Nine Records. I uh, I like, I'm sure many listening right now have, uh, have at least a few uh, albums from the label in their uh, collection. And uh, we're going to talk all about Bridge Nine Records. And also, uh, if you've not seen, they have a, a brand new record store as well over in uh, Beverly, Mass. So talk about the new record store and just, uh, I mean, again, Bridge Nine Records as a whole. I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. So, Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, let's get, let's get started. Yeah, I mean, let's let's get into it. I was, I was thinking about this earlier. I mean, as we are uh, going into 2023 here, what year will that mark for Bridge Nine? What is what is this next coming year? What will that mark that, for uh, that's you? That's twenty eight years. Wow! So the label started in nineteen ninety five. Do you have? I mean, uh, do you have like an exact date, or at least one in your head mentally that you feel like that was the day it started, or is it just kind of a blurry? It started somewhere in there, kind of. Yeah, like, it was. It was kind of. It was like mid ninety five. I, I don't know the exact date, but like summertime. Do you, uh, you know, you know, how, how about like running the, uh, running the label, like early on, I want to, I guess we kind of start like at the history of it. I'll kind of go back a little bit, but like starting out with, uh, running a record label, I'm always kind of interested in this for like jumping into something like that. I mean, had you before doing bridge nine, had you done any inkling of like running a label, be it an intern at a label or doing, doing anything that could kind of translate into running a record label? No, I was I was I was literally the least qualified person. Um, I had no music, uh, business history experience, anything. Um, I was always a self starter. You know, I'd always try and do my own thing, and I was helping friends, bands with their demo tapes and you know designs for T-shirts and and stuff like that. And I just I don't know. I wanted to do something to stay connected to my hometown scene. I I had recently left. Um, my hometown to go to college a couple states away. So I just wanted something that, that I could work on and, and be connected. And uh, you, you, just, you don't think that you're going to start a record label. You just, you're just going to put out a record. You're just going to do something with your friends. Um, that first record that I did was kids from my high school. So, you know, it was just something like familiar. That's I mean, that is to be a crazy thing too. I think about it as well with, I mean, like that, you're putting out like high school friends, bands. I mean, whether it's the label or the band itself, I feel like very few people can do something like that at such a young age and it be something that later sustains into like, I mean, like this, like, I don't know what you really thought at this point you'd be, not only do you have the record label, you have the record store and all this. And it's like, I mean, how many people just kind of do that as a hobby to start out or just kind of a, for fun. I mean, even, even by the sounds of you, it doesn't sound like you started it thinking, wow, I'm going to like really leave a mark in music with this thing or I'll be doing this forever or anything yeah. like that. I was, I was 19 when I started. Um, I mean, most, most people I knew uh, started record labels or what became record labels when they were teenagers and no one had a business plan. Nobody was like, this is what I'm going to do. And for most people that I knew, it was just something that they did for a few years, you know, for fun, put out a handful of records with their friends' bands. Um, and I just, I don't know. I, I, I just kept going. I didn't stop. Was there was there ever a moment for you? Because I guess somewhere in there, it does, and maybe you notice it, or maybe you don't. But like, it does go from that thing of, I guess, hobby or what you do for fun to, oh wow, this is like this can become a job. Like I'm gonna like this is gonna kind of keep going. Was there ever like a defining moment for you where you kind of noticed like you were gonna kind of this wasn't just gonna be a thing of hey, I put out a friend or two's record and then it kind of dissolves. And was there a moment you're like, oh wow, like okay, this is gonna keep going. There was definitely a time where I was like, I'm going, like, I never really, again, there was no plan, but I think I got to the point where I was like, oh shit, I'm actually putting out too many records. I can't do my day job anymore. You know, I have to, I have to put all my energy into this. It can't just be nights and weekends. That's pretty neat. I, I feel like that has to be a pretty good feeling though, to, uh, to realize, oh, okay, I guess this is the job now. This is, this is the thing I have to do. Yeah. 
Um, you know, the, the other thing, like with the label, I know you said you really before that had like no label experience or anything like that. But like how long was Bridge Nine kind of an idea in your head before actually getting out like even your friends from high school's, you know, record? Like how, how long was it a thought you even kind of kicked around in your head? Was it pretty instant or was that something you toyed with for a while before actually executing the plan? It was pretty quick. It, it started. I mean, it, it was an idea. And within the, within that year, the first record came out. Um, so it was probably like early 95. I was like, oh, that'd be cool. You know, I had friends of mine that I went to school with were the ones that said, hey, you should try doing this because um, they knew other people that, that had put out records. I knew people from my high school that had put out records on their own labels. And, you know, it just it was like, all right, like, let's give it a shot specifically for like you were saying we knew other people who like were putting out records and stuff so like there were other like local labels and people putting things out how about though like hardcore and kind of what bridge nine was doing were there many other labels putting that out or was were you kind of one of the only ones doing kind of the hardcore punk thing oh no no i mean i i think when bridge nine first started 95 96 97 i mean i feel like it was one of like 100 labels (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, there was a lot of labels that were run by people that were, you know, teenagers, 19, 20 years old, um, that were just putting out one seven inch record a year. So kind of like I was at first, you know. But not they weren't all the some of the, some of those. Yeah, were like, you know, if you went and looked on on, I guess, Discogs or something, maybe they released like a handful of records or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it, it, it was, I mean, again, these are all people that nobody had a, any real business plan. Nobody was like trying to do anything beyond just putting out a record, waiting till it recoups, try it again, you know, do it a few times. With that, because I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I talked to, you know, I like, I talk to a lot of musicians, so I can kind of get on like the music scene part of it, like from a musician standpoint, but like, it's kind of interesting. I feel like getting on the label side and like knowing that there were so many people putting out records and stuff like that, like from the local label aspect, like were people kind of helping one another or was it a little more competitive? I mean, what, what were labels like back then? Were you all kind of working together, helping each other? Is everyone kind of in their own lane, kind of doing their own thing? I feel like for at at that level, it was, it was something where people help each other out. Um, I know I had uh, originally reached out to somebody that did a label because, you know, when you start, when when you decide like, Hey, I want to put out a record or I want to, you know, release a single with, friend's band like especially in the mid 90s there's there's no real guide right like there was a few things here and there that you could try and read into um about how to do it but you really had to find someone that had already done it and pick their brain you know and that's that's what i did i mean i just i found somebody that had already put out a bunch of records and and just uh just called them wow it's so weird to think of now like i like at the time i mean you're right what you i mean you just got to find a way to do it but like at this point, like in the in the age of the internet and everything, it's almost wild. I feel like I'm sure there's many things of the ways labels, the way you probably ran the label back then to now. I mean, I'm sure things are just totally different. But even even thinking of that, like you have to call these people and find them and stuff. You can't just you know I don't know go on the label's website and like hit the contact form or something like that and yeah. hope you get a hold of the label owner or something. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know the. Uh, I was given the phone number of uh, this guy, Scott Bybin, who did a label called Bloodlink out of Philly in the mid nineties. And uh, a, fr- a friend of his gave me a cell phone, or not a cell phone, it was just gave me his phone number um, on a piece of paper and I had to call him from a payphone. You know, And this is somebody that I didn't know, but I was like, hey, you know, my friend Mark, who you know, gave me your number. And, um, and it was just like, hey, you know, basically told him like, I want to put out a record, where should I start? And I mean, I probably sounded like such a noob, you know, kind of like, um, you know, he's probably like, who's this, this random kid that's calling me from out of nowhere. But back then it wasn't as, it wasn't uncommon. I mean, you know, people were reaching out to each other through letters and, and, and phone calls um, in a way that I don't think people do anymore. I mean, now obviously you just drop somebody an email if you don't know them, but were you, came a call. were you at all on the label side? Cause like, I, I feel like bands from this era too, that's kind of like the book your own fucking life, like yeah. era of that. I mean, like, was that helpful for the label side? Like, could you utilize that at all for being in a doing the label th- side of things? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, MRR and, and like fanzines like that were a great resource. Um, but yeah, you really just had to find people that were already doing it and just ask questions. 
I was gonna say that's why like I I mean when people hit me up for you know about stuff, I always try to be, you know, pay, you know, kind of continue to pay it forward as much as I can because I was in a position where like, I had no idea what I was doing. Sometimes I still don't, you know, like it's just you just have to kind of like, you know, stumble through it and then and then uh, you know, talk to people that have had some experience in it. No, I mean, I, I would almost argue too. like, I mean, I guess just like there's there's almost no like wrong or right way to like start a band or something. I would almost even think a label would be harder because when you think about it, I don't know, at least with a band, I mean, you figure out the rest later, but you get a handful of people, you start playing. But like to run a label, like where do you go from there? It, it almost seems like there is like it's much it seems like a harder thing to just jump into, I feel like. And and also as a, as a one person kind of deal, it's not a go find your bandmates and go on. I mean, obviously you later on have people helping running the label. I'm sure early on, it's basically just you. Oh yeah. It's, it's all DIY. I mean, it's in a lot of levels, it still is even today, but like when you, you know, when you get started, I mean, you, you, you have to also know that you're not like the scope of what you're trying to do when you're at that point early on, like you're not trying to build whatever, you know, like bridge nine. Like I had no idea that bridge and I would continue on to where it's at now. But like at the time I was like, I just have this one band and we want to put out this one record. And I mean, I was doing one a year. So like it, it was a, a pretty, I mean, it felt like a huge commitment at the time and it was something that I put all my energy into, but it wasn't like all encompassing. But I mean, when you don't know where to start, like it seems like it seems crazy, you know, and like the idea of like, oh, I'm just going to start this, thing you know especially back then when i would talk to people that had no idea about subcultures and about like what what i was into with punk they they were like oh a record label like what like the grammys or like you know gold records like they like the the scope and, and like the perception of what a record label is to like a civilian or someone that's not involved in punk at all um, yeah it's completely different than you know the reality and you can start a record label with I mean, I think I had like 600 bucks, you know, at the time. Like, it, it's just, uh, you just start with what you have. I love that. And you're right. Like, I don't I don't know if other genres, I feel it's so ingrained in like, kind of like punk and all that. We're like, so I know it's there, but like, I wonder if there are any other genres really like that. We're like, you really can, like, you don't, you don't have to have tons and tons of money or fanfare and this or that to get into it. And like how DIY and like how connected things are, we're like, yeah, like where you're talking about, like, there's a lot of people who it's not that obtainable to like talk to some of your heroes or get to, you know, I mean, just just how I don't I don't know, like the way punk rock or subgenres and stuff are like, like that. Like there's so many others where I don't feel like that exists. You're like, oh, yeah, I start my label and I put out bands like this. Like that doesn't I don't feel like that happens everywhere. And maybe it does. But like punk rock seems to be one of the most like DIY and one that that kind of exists. Like the you, you yourself could even start the way you did. Yeah, I think uh, I think most people's experience in music is a lot different than the ones the experience that you and I have and other people that you know a lot of I'm sure your listeners have is like you know where you can be very hands on and you come into a community where um, you see how uh, how um, how things are run. You know, like I remember, like if you were going to a concert in like. I don't know, like a, like a, like at a, at a, at like a big um, stadium or something. I mean, like you're just uh, a random number. You're not a part. You're, you're just, you're just a, a, a somebody that's watching, but you're not really a part of it. I mean, and in, in obviously in punk, like you have uh, so many roles that people gravitate towards, whether it's, you know, being in a band or doing a fanzine or taking photos at shows or putting bands up, you know, at your house, you know, to stay uh, after a show. Um, I feel like there's so many parts that people can contribute to and not just be a spectator. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's a part that just blows me away where you start yeah. talking to people who aren't, who are either like just very casually into music or, I mean, are just into, into things like you're talking about, like arena level things, like things where you are kind of a number and that person you're watching on stage, you're probably not going to get a chance to talk to, or they're probably not selling merch after either. You're not going to go buy like, the band seven inch from the singer afterwards, yep. you know, an arena like that, that kind of deal. And you do sometimes, sometimes I feel like I don't notice it until you talk to people outside of, you know, like the genre or sub genres. I know we're saying punk, it's fairly general, but like yeah. just the whole thing, you know, it's a, I feel like that's part of the special thing. And again, like talking to you, Ridge nine is much more bona fide now, but you know, the start of it, 
very uh you know you might not be able to do that in a every other genre which i think is a uh, quite cool but and I, I think that being immersed in that kind of subculture or that genre like you you it's it's almost it's motivating to want to do something on your own and want to start something because it's it is obtainable you see other people doing it you know it's not like behind it's not like the wizard of oz like behind the curtain no, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's, that's the way to go in my opinion. That's the, it's a much better way. I would rather, I'd rather people look at something like that and go, Oh, I can do that. than like, Oh my God, what a scary, how I don't, I don't know what it takes to do that, but like, really just jump in and do it. You know, yeah. for, for yeah. you, I mean, we, we were talking about like with bands, you know, early on, like putting out friends bands and stuff like that. But when you started signing, you know, like bands of people who, you know, may not be a friend, maybe you knew no one in the band and they're just like submitting music or you're looking for them, what were like early on, would you say things you were looking for in a band to sign them? Were there any like, maybe you didn't even have a specific checklist, but was there anything you were looking for in a band that was like, okay, that makes them, you know, either bridge nine material or someone, someone I want to work with. Yeah. I think uh, early on, I, I used to joke that the one requirement was you had to be a fan of the bad brains. Uh, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great rule. It yeah. should still be in place. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it's, at, at, at the, the number one requirement is really you just have to like the music, right? And you have to uh, be excited by it. But uh, the reality is, with especially with a label that has limited resources, which most independent labels do, um, like you, you work with people at first that you know, right? Like, like so. In my case, it was people that I went to high school with, um, and then you work with the bands that they tour with, and like it goes like one ring out like over, you know, every, I don't know, what number of years, right? So like at first, it's just the people that I'm, you know, friends with that are, you know, that I know in Boston or that I, you know, um, would, would meet on tour. And then it's there, then it becomes their friends, you know? And then for me, it was like the people that worked for me, their friends, you know, you kind of like go a couple of rings out and it's um, ultimately when you have, again, a limited amount of resources, you want to work with people that you know, or people that become that come like highly recommended to you. So oftentimes it's, you know, if you're, if you're in a band and you're interested in a label, a lot of times the best way to get to that label is through a band that's already on their roster. You kind of have that, like, like you trust their word almost like if this band vouches for you, then, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that, that carries a lot of weight, you know, like I've only, I mean, we've put out over like 300 releases and only a handful of them have been, have been completely unsolicited. You know, there's definitely been stuff that I'm like, oh, this is this is rad and and and, and just put it out just because I wanted to. Um, but most often it's, it, you know, it's 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 recommended through somebody I already know or have a relationship with. I mean, with with so many releases, it may be hard to like pick specific things like this out. But like, do you remember the first band you put out that that was like, from another region, you know, not Massachusetts, like, like was one of the first bands you put out that wasn't from like kind of the new England region that maybe was from the West coast or Midwest or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the first band that I talked to from the West coast was carry on. Um, that was, you know, the, the, the band didn't do a ton themselves back then, but members went on to be in terror, um, you know, uh, nails, uh, betrayed. There was a, a bunch of stuff that came out, um, after that internal affairs um but they were a band that was on tour with american nightmare so when american nightmare went to the west coast for the first time it was like the fall of 2000 um, i went with them and and they they supported uh the four shows that they played out there you know and they were just a sick band was like oh this, this band's awesome so that that's a good way to uh i feel like to being a label like going on the road like that good way to see a, a band and if you like them or not Go yeah. see who they're like opening with and stuff. I mean, I guess you get a you get a little bit of a, a taste of the live show as well. Well, you, you get to see them, yeah, you get to see them live, but you also get to spend some time with them and get to know them. I mean, when Bridge Nine went to Europe with American Nightmare on that their first European tour in two thousand one, I signed two bands from one from England and one from from Holland. You know, when I went to Australia, um, I signed a band when I was down there. So like. You know, it's like you get to know these people and, and, and you, you want to work with them and you want to help them. You know, you have a good time with them in, in their country and you're like, oh, this band's rad. You want to bring them and give them exposure, you know, uh, where you're from. 
do you do you remember uh for bridge nine do you remember like the first release that kind of did get net you know going going again like talking about like bands outside of your area like you remember the first bridge nine release that got buzz kind of again outside of the local region like the first the first one you started people seemed to notice it out outside of massachusetts that was probably uh so we did a split seven inch with uh this band right brigade who was kind of like a half connecticut started as a connecticut band uh, that moved to boston um and this other band called poor excuse that was from boston so that that was the first record that really people from around the country were pre-ordering and and um and excited about. Nice, nice. In the uh, in the beginning for you, I like I like talking mail order. I, I myself do not mail order per se, but you know shipping shipping a lot of shit. And for you, like in the in the early days, I mean, what was that like doing? I, I would imagine you probably didn't have. Did you have a web store in the beginning, or was it? Yeah. No, in the era of like catalogs and, and mail order and all that. Yeah. So I didn't have a web a website for at least I think three years. So I think the first I think the first website was like the very end of ninety-eight going into ninety-nine. So like the first three or four years, it was just strictly um putting little ads in fanzines. And then I mean the move back then was you'd buy like a cheap ad and like a maximum rock and roll or like a like a, a fanzine like that that got uh, kind of national distribution and then like a little sixth page ad um and it would have some promo for whatever you're doing and it would say like send me a dollar and i'll send you a catalog and a sticker and i would just get like letters every day I would just get these letters from people with like their one dollar bill and you know like a note sometimes they draw things on the envelopes um sometimes it would just be like hey here's my address or sometimes they'd say hey like you know, I, like how, what's Boston like, or what's or back then it was like, what's Connecticut like? Like, um, I'm from, you know, from wherever. And, uh, you'd be, you know, you'd get pen pals out of it. So, I mean, there's people that I would just like write letters to. And then I like, they'd like, Oh, like, so basically they would, you place the ad in the fanzine, they'd send you the $1 bill. You'd send them a sticker with a photocopy catalog, right? Like just like one page with whatever you had. And it, back then it was all cut and paste and mail it to them. And then, They'd be like, "Oh, I want that that record, or I want that T-shirt," and then they'd th- throw ten bucks in an envelope and mail it to you, and then you'd send it. So, like, just to sell one thing, it was like four things <laughs> back and forth. Um, it would take you know weeks or months. Wow, it's stuff. So, I mean, I know like it had to be done that way for a long time, and that was the norm. But like, I, I don't know if it's different for you for doing it. But like, when you talk about it, I know things are done that way, which is yeah. so different from now. Like, it's almost a whole different like. I mean, I guess it is a whole different model of doing it, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's crazy. Like, do you re- do you remember when it, like, because I'm sure you still kind of had it for a while after the web store. I'm sure it, like, slowly got phased out. Do you remember, like, about when you stopped doing the mail order thing? It all became, you know, exclusively basically web store and all that? You know, it's probably in the mid two or I don't know, 2003, probably 2004. It, it's shifted. I mean, we, we, we did get a lot of letters, mail orders in the early 2000s, but um, it probably shifted mostly online by 2003, 2004. But we still get like the random mail order. I mean, there's still really? random people that throw 10 bucks in an envelope and say, send me the CD. And, like, you know, like I literally like, like, I'm like, all right, that's cool. You know, and, and just, we'll put a note in it and send it back to them. Like, you know, like it's like the 90s. That is okay. So I guess I think about that. I mean, I take it. I guess Bridge Nine probably does still have a PO box or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People well, can people, still send you their ten dollars too. People can still can still send us up and send you know send us mail orders, which you know, which is cool. That is quite amazing. That is, I, I like talking yeah. about that stuff. And we, you know, it's funny. We kept like I we. I mean, I I kept a lot of the mail orders from back then. So like, I have bins full of letters from kids from the nineties that I've gone through over the years. Like I found mail orders from a whole ton of people that later went on to put out records on Bridge Nine, which was oh nice. Yeah, which was really, really cool. Like Joe Hardcore from, you know, the This is Hardcore Fest. I have a letter from 1997 that he sent me. I think he was 16 years old and he even said like, if you know, if you ever have any bands that want to come play a show in Philly, you know, let me know. Uh, like, I hope, you know, like, let me know and, and uh, I'll, I'll hook you up. You know, and it's like, and now he's, you know, obviously got this great festival and and has had like this whole life in music too um which is very cool but like i have members of uh like todd jones who was in carry on like as a teenager you know email order from bridge nine 
um, a bunch of the guys in No Warning, and Mental, and um, you know, like all these and all these other people like that are like big booking agents now. You know that uh, like just mail ordered records back then. It was cool. That is, that is so cool. Have you have you gotten anyone uh, two nine in bands, but like that, like in management or something else, who uh, maybe was in a high school band or something like that, who had uh, submitted to you? Have you found any people you've met, maybe not musicians anymore, but were like, yeah, my band uh, submitted to you back in the uh, day? Then obviously it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's not so much of that. I there's I'm sure there's definitely demos that I was like, man, pass. Um, that that didn't go anywhere with us, but. Um, you know, just knowing that somebody took the time to, to, to write a letter and, and mail to you. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's pretty cool. It's special. It definitely feels, uh, it's a different experience, I think, than, than now. I mean, I wouldn't go back. I mean, I think now is convenient. And, um, I mean, being able to put something online, like right, right this moment and be able to send it to somebody tomorrow is pretty sick compared to, you know, weeks of back and forth before you can actually send them something. Yeah, can you imagine if tomorrow we had to go back to that? Just all of that's good. Like, internet's gone. You got to, like, if you want some Bridge Nine goods, you got to send me a dollar. Yeah, like, you can yeah. find me in the back of the Middle East nightclub with my table of records, you know, <laughs> and, and buy it at a distro. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love a good distro to show. I, I enjoy a good distro. I, I haven't seen one of those in a little while, and I, I, I think I'm going to the wrong shows lately. I like, I like a good distro. For uh, you know, I want to I want to talk to you too about it for being in the uh, New England region, which I think the last talking to Travis from Piebald earlier this year, we talked a little bit about like you know the scene up there like in the '90s and stuff. But I'm kind of interested, like paint us a little bit of the picture, like the hardcore scene and stuff in Massachusetts, like mid '90s when Bridge Nine is starting. I mean, a ton of bands, a lot of venues. Like it's from an outsider perspective, it seemed like it was a strong time for that music up in that way. Yeah, I mean, Boston has always really had a strong scene. A big part of it, I think, is because there's so many uh, and there's so many colleges here and there's so many schools. So a lot of people come to Boston. So there's a lot of outside influence, um, people that end up growing roots here like I did. Right. Like I I'm from central Connecticut originally, um, went to school in Vermont. And then when I graduated, moved to, moved to Boston because a lot of the people that I had grown up with ended up there because, you know, when you grow up in central Connecticut, you either really either move north to Boston or south to New York City. Um, and a lot of the kids I knew, especially people that were into like the hardcore punk scene, all ended up in Boston. So like, when, I moved to, when I moved to the Mission Hill neighborhood in 98, I mean, there was a dozen people from my high school that were all into hardcore and punk that all ended up in the same neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was like, a, that was part of the reason why I moved there. It's because like, I knew people there. Was there, and I mean, it sounds like you've you've moved around the uh, New England region a little bit. Like, I mean, I'm always interested in that. Like, is there, Massachusetts is one, including Boston. Like, I feel like people know there's definitely a scene there and music and stuff. Are there any other pockets like within New England and maybe even, even ones no one would think of where it's like, yeah, that, that one, you know, that town in New Hampshire, this, that has a really strong music scene. I mean, there, are there any pockets up that way? And I mean, I, I'm talking, I guess, too, back in the 90s, but you can talk now. Yeah. Where there are just real strong scenes in these little pockets of New England. Yeah, I mean, like in the '90s, you know, Portland, Maine had had, had a great scene, had a great venue, um, and have had a great venue, uh, like Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, I mean, I remember Portsmouth had a, a venue for a long time. So you know, you, you get these scenes that would kind of exist around cool record stores, cool venues. Um, I was living in Vermont for four years, and. I was about an hour south of Burlington, but Burlington had a great scene and a really long time venue that had been there. Um, it took me a little while to to get to know people there and to kind of grow from outside of like my little whatever college campus um, kind of, uh, you know, bubble that I was in. Um, but we go to Albany, um, which was about an hour away as well. And there was I mean, tons of great shows in, in Albany, too. I, I always wonder that up there because, too, that's the other thing is it seems like you can jump around. You're in a you're in a. One of those areas where you can kind of get to the other state fairly easy or fairly fast, so you kind of end up in. I feel like scenes maybe kind of mingle a bit. I don't know if that's true, but it seems like the proximity would make it where those Vermont bands probably come down to Massachusetts. Massachusetts yeah. bands go up to Vermont. You know that that kind of deal. Well, the, the great thing was back then, if you know, if when I was in high school, if I wanted to see a band, I could see them three times because I'd I'd go see them in Rhode Island. I'd see them in central Connecticut and then I'd go see them in Boston or I'd see them in Western mass. 
Um, you know, I was being in Connecticut. I was, I mean, I was two hours from Boston, but I was like 45 minutes from Western Mass. So, you know, bands would hit one of those probably four places, you know, every, you know, if not two or three times. You and I are kind of the same boat in that where I'm at Jamestown here in Western New York. Like I'm 90 minutes from Buffalo, two and a half from Cleveland, like two and a half from Pittsburgh, yeah. three from Rochester. So like you're saying, if I really like a band, there's definitely been times where I do my own little weekend run. You yep. can go see the band two or three times if you want to make that drive. Yep. You can uh, you can do it in those regions. That's kind of the nice uh, perk of that. But, um, you know, kind of, again, kind of jumping back to like early on in, in Bridge Nine, what were like some of the challenges early on? What would you say were some of the biggest hurdles or even just straight up pain in the asses of, of getting Bridge Nine going in the beginning? What were, what were some of your early challenges? You know, the, the hardest part, so when you're the label, you're basically like you have to come up with, and a lot, a, a lot of the times the label has to come up with the money to help get the band in the studio. I mean, sometimes bands do their own thing with recordings and then the label helps afterwards. Um, early on, I would try and help the band uh, get into the studio, pay for the recording, you know, that they, that they had. Um, and you have to figure out how to come up with that money. And I mean, back then I just had a part-time job. Like I was barely covering my own bills, much less helping launch a band. So like, you know, trying to always get creative and come up with ways, whatever side hustles you could do to come up with whatever means you needed to push a project along um, was a really big part of it. That that would make sense. And, and I, as you're saying that, I feel like the earlier on, probably the less money the bands you were working with had. Like, yeah. I, like I feel like the, you know, as you're getting notoriety and stuff and and maybe you do start having a little money, you know, the labels and choices of the bands, I'm sure early on, yeah, you're not, you're not working with bands who have any budget themselves, you know, yeah. probably, probably not really, uh, or even maybe know how to do some of that stuff. I'm sure a lot of those bands too, probably the first time they're going in a studio or it's the first time they're really, you know, recording or doing anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really grassroots and it, and it still is in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's not something, you know, that like there's, I, I talk about gold records. There's no gold records here. So <laughs> how about like, like your day to day, I'm, I'm sure is like changed over the years. I mean, is it, is it totally different running bridge nine in 2022 than it, than it was in say like 95, 96, is it totally different monster? Yeah. Well, it's, so it's just changed in a lot of different ways. Right. So like back then, there, you know, even though it seemed like a ton of responsibilities, it was pretty minor. Um, as you go from putting out one record a year or two, or three to five to 10 to 20 records a year, um, the pace picks up, the responsibilities grow. You have to, you, you hire additional people. Like you have like the whole infrastructure of everything that you're doing uh, expands and grows and, and it can contract. Like things are, you know, like with a band, you know, you go through waves of popularity or you go through waves of opportunity. Um, and then sometimes things are awesome. Sometimes things are slower. Um, you just have to kind of be able to come up with uh, the flexibility to 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 grow and and and, and shrink with that, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we as a label, like it's my responsibilities have changed considerably over the years. Um, you know, there was a period of time where I had a, like, we had like six employees and we were putting out like 20 records a year. Um, right now on the heels of COVID and our move, you know, we're actually at a smaller, uh, like number of people here than we've been in a long time. Um, and in a lot of ways we're like rebuilding and just regrowing kind of in oh, a wow. way. Yeah. That's I mean, great. During COVID, I mean, we, we, we got down to a skeleton staff and we got to the point where we were as small as we had been in 20 years and we weren't putting out new records, right? Most people weren't touring, were not really doing anything. So we, we were kind of focused on just um, in a lot of ways, just getting through it. Um, but then also transitioning from our old warehouse where we've been for, for many, many years to the new space that we're in now. Um, and if you ask like my daughter, you know, what I did today or, what I've been doing for months, you know, she'd like, like dad. So like, what did you scrape today? Or what did you sand? Or what did you paint? Cause I was wearing a contractor hat, like half the day, every day, um, trying to get this new space ready. So, and she would just make fun of me for it. You stay, you're staying quite, uh, you're staying quite busy, which 
I mean, also also goes into which I was going to talk about. You know, I mean, if people are uh, if people are watching this on YouTube and you can see the gorgeous record store behind you, but like I mentioned earlier too, the Bridge Nine uh, record store that just opened. I mean, was that was that a product of during the pandemic, like figuring out what you were doing next? Is that where the idea for the record store came up, or was that an idea long before the uh, pandemic happened? So uh, having a record store component to being label is, I think, a dream of a lot of people when you're when you're involved in music. But um, it was just something that we never that I never put the energy into really thinking about. But during the pandemic and, you know, being in a position where everything was so kind of hidden away and you're separated from people um, for, for so for so for so long. Right. Um, I mean, there was a period of time where it was just me and my partner. Uh, uh, just working by ourselves, you know, um, and, and packing all the mail orders, just like I had had many years before. And with the move into having a record store, you get to the point where you want something that is based in re- reality, right? In community, you want something where, you know, people can come in. I mean, we, for, for 14 years, were in like an industrial complex that didn't have a sign. Nobody even knew we were there, which was probably cool and it helped, keep things low profile for, for certain years, but um, you just you get to the point where you just feel detached. And I think I just got to the point in my life where I was like, I want to be the person that has a space where people can come to it and and build that community. Do you, do you think it would have, which I don't know, maybe eventually would have, but do you, was the pandemic kind of the push to do that? Like, do you, do you think you would have gotten to that had that not happened? Or do you think you would have kind of kept putting it off? Like it's a dream and it's a thought, but, when am I going to get to it? I think I would have gotten to it, but it would have taken a lot longer. And I mean, our hand was kind of forced because the building that we were in for many years was sold out from under us. So, yeah, I mean, we originally signed, like I signed a three-year lease because I didn't, I mean, I liked the space, but I I wasn't a hundred percent, but I needed a spot because I had to move out of the old place. And so I, I landed at this building, you know, that we ended up, you know, signing a lease for three years and we're, you know, there for 11 additional years, kind of month to month. Um, so by the time the landlord, you know, he was an older gentleman during COVID was like, all right, I'm, I'm cashing out. Um, I'm, you know, retiring basically. Um, we kind of were just kind of faced with the fact that we had to do something and I was ready to do it. But, um, and I don't think I could have done it any other any other time because the whole, I mean, the whole moving into uh, out of your space and, and breaking down 14 years of stuff is it's so all encompassing that it, I wouldn't have been able to wrap my head around it if it was like a regular year. So it's a lot to unpack. It seems like I, that's yeah. a, that's a long time to be in a spot. Yeah. You know, and you keep, I mean, I keep everything right. Like I've always had a pretty big warehouse. So like, like I said, I mean, I keep all, I kept all my mail orders from the nineties. So you know, like I, <laughs> It's I'm part archivist, um, you know, part, uh, I don't know, I still throw things out. And, and so like that, that translates to lots and lots of stuff. And, and you kind of have to, I don't know, it makes moving difficult. How, how long, I mean, I, I think it's only been like a couple months. How long has the record store actually been open for now? So it's been open for uh, just about three months. Um, yeah, we opened in September and it's been great. You know, it's been cool. It's uh, we're still trying to get our rhythm and, trying to build up our inventory and, and, um, and, and kind of wrap our heads around, you know, now being like this kind of public facing uh, retail space. Um, but it's, it's been cool. And that was great because it took us 18 months just to get to that point. So we got, you know, the keys in early March last year and it took us a year and a half to, to renovate the space to finally be able to open. So by the time we could open, I was just like, fuck it. Like I'm, I just, I don't care. I just, I just want to get open. You just want that. Yeah. Yeah. By that point, you just want that thing out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, I, I know you're selling bridge nine albums and also by the looks of it, a couple of those look up there, look non bridge nine. So you're selling other things, right? I assume you didn't release a Ramon. Uh, do I see Ramon's uh, road to ruin back there? Yeah, I, don't, I remember bridge nine releasing that one. I mean, we, so we're on, it's kind of wild to think about it. We're on a main street in this kind of nice New England town. Um, in Beverly, Massachusetts. And it's wild to think that we're opening a punk rock record store, you know, in like, like such a high profile spot, uh, especially in 2022. But I mean, the reality is, I mean, look, I, I love Bridge Nine. Bridge Nine's cool. We've been able to work with a lot of bands. 
Um, but the reality is the average person coming off the street here has no idea who American Nightmare is, has no idea who Terror is. So, you know, and this store isn't just a record store. So we have one half of it is, is punk rock records and all things that are within a degree of separation. And the other side is kind of sports clothing. Um, oh, nice. brand. So I have a brand called Sully's that does like kind of Boston centric sports apparel. And the average you know, so the person coming in that might be a Bruins fan and see something they want to buy, um, you know, there, there's no context, right? So, yeah. like, you know, we obviously we want to at least have uh, stuff that resonates with people that might be um, not, uh, you know, uh, as well versed in everything we do. So that's why we have, you know, we got the Ramones records and MC5 and, you know, uh, Bad Brains records in the wall. So there's something that is a kind of a point of context for, for someone. I mean, yeah, you have a great selection. I mean, on top of yeah, all the Bridge Nine, I mean, there's some uh, there's some absolute classics on the wall up there. So there's Thank a nice uh, there's a nice amount of uh, everything. I, I want to, you know, I kind of want to ask this too, as someone who just opened a record store and runs a record label. But I mean, this is this is something that's always like I'm I myself am a vinyl collector, and I feel like in punk and hardcore, it's it's I, I feel like it kept for a, like vinyl now. Obviously, there's been a vinyl boom. And I feel like it was kind of happening in punk and hardcore and stuff longer before that. But I mean, does it ever blow your mind to see where vinyls went? Because we went from an era where like, I mean, like when you go back to like the early 2000s or mid 2000s and piracy and stuff, I mean, you could hardly get someone to go buy just a CD per se. But yeah. now like vinyl is like way more inconvenient, more expensive. Like, you know, I mean, there's a collector side and everything, but like, does it ever blow your mind or did you ever see vinyl coming back the way it did? Because again, I'm saying this as someone who collects vinyl. I mean, if you look at where music was 15 years ago, the to imagine to chart buy a record, buy a physical record, I feel like that was almost insane. Like, I mean, I would love your thoughts on that as a record label owner and all and all that. Yeah, well, it's it is wild because in the in the 90s, I mean, the pressing plant that I used back then had like 15 employees. And they were mostly, put, you know, pressing um, country records, punk records, and because they were in Nashville, you know, so like some country records, punk records, and hip hop records. And like that was probably it. Now they've got hundreds of employees and have like a whole. I mean, it's it's crazy. So vinyl has obviously grown quite a bit. Um, I think that you know, I, everyone, it's the tangible aspect of it. It's something that you can hold. It's something that you can, you know, uh, it is a product and it's collectible, but it's something that you can connect with more than just flipping through things on Spotify. Um, so I think, I think vinyl, I mean, vinyl was popular for, for decades before it went away and it went away for convenience issues or, or whatever, you know, quality, sound quality. And I think people realized that that wasn't uh, all that had been sold to them as like, you know, CDs and digital. Um, so while like digital music and streaming music is very convenient and it's a great way for people to listen to stuff and to find out about new stuff, new bands. Um, I think vinyl's not going anywhere now. I think it's, it's not a fad. It's, it's, it was clearly cool for decades before. And I think it's, it's going to stay, stay that way. Um, but it is wild to see it. And, and, uh, and it, it's cool. Cause you're right. I mean, in the, when bridge nine really got our feet underneath us is when the floor dropped out when, with respect to the music industry, because, the label might have started in 95, but our first nationally touring bands didn't start until 2000. And then it's, oh, yeah. you know, that yeah, you're right in that. Yeah. Prior to that, it was putting out records with, you know, friends that were just, you know, going a state or two away and playing random shows and halls and, and basements and stuff. Um, after that, like 2000, 2001, in those early 2000s, that's when we started getting bands that were really willing to tour, uh, both in the US and, and internationally. And that was like when music basically just people were curating their record collection or their music collections with like, you know, stolen digital downloads or whatever. Right. Like, you know, like like LimeWire and like these different programs to just like not pay for music. And I think culturally it's come back where, you know, now there's conveniences and now there's um, uh, like music. Um, like uh, like with Spotify and and and, and there's conveniences in, in these programs where people can, you know, it's just culturally it's just become come back to being something that's accepted and cool or whatever, you know, it's it's, but it's um, 
sorry, I lost my train of thought there, but basically I think it's, we're, we're now in a position where music is um, something that people, you know, support in a way that they didn't maybe when Bridge Nine was really getting started. Which is nice to see. Cause I don't know. I, I mean, again, like it, if you went back to those days, I'm, I'm sure most people, if you told them, no, give it time, like people will buy album and not like not CDs per se. I mean, but even CDs seem like they've had a little more of a, uh, like, I don't want to say boom, but they sell a little better than where for a while, but like to, yeah, ever think that vinyl was the thing that was like going to blow up again. I love to see it. I think it's great. Like I love, you can open a record store. Like I think it's awesome, but yeah, it's so interesting, including from a person on the label side, you know, the one, the one putting them out. It's like, yeah, I don't know that I ever saw vinyl becoming the thing that it has or even branching out because punk and hardcore. I mean, there were still, I feel like there's always people collect and stuff. You still have that, like, those subgenres, there'd still be people kind of interested in vinyl, but like you can go buy vinyl at like Barnes and Noble or a Guitar Center or something yeah. like that now. Like it's mainstream. Yeah, I mean it's everywhere, and and there's there's actually five record stores within two towns. So like, right, I live you know I live, I live and work in Beverly. I'm one town over from Salem here in Massachusetts, and between Salem and Beverly, there's five record stores. And in the same way, Bridge Nine's record store is is you know rooted in hardcore and punk one street over there's a hip-hop like a hip-hop based record store it's it's so nice so like and there's a a, a pretty good overlap between people that come to my store and and people that go to to their store um so we're able to kind of refer people back and forth and you know now we're getting to the point where you know and and even in salem there's like a really cool kind of more metal and kind of stoner rock based record store um and there's another one that's like more of like a digger kind of like you know like like old kind of like looking through old, uh, you know, used oh, crates, finding yeah, the the yeah. gems in there. So there's there's a little something for everybody, and 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 now you know you can come to the Beverly Salem area and hit a whole bunch of stores. And it's like a so you know hopefully it's something that'll attract you know people from a lot further than just our our local town, right? Like so if you live south of Boston, you're an hour away, or if you're up in New Hampshire, you can come down to this area, get lunch, and like hit a bunch of stores. Yeah, it makes it worth it. It's not like I got to be over there. It's like, no, you can make a day of it. Go yep. go do a little record store run. You yep. can hit it you can hit it all. That's pretty cool. As we uh, you know, as we close up here just a just a few more for you. You know, I mean, we're kind of talking about a little like in the beginning for you kind of like figuring out how you run a record label and all that stuff. Are there any pointers you would give somebody trying to start a record label? I mean, I I, I know I'm I'm sure you can't give them the uh, step by step, but anything you tell someone who is like, "Hey, I want to try to run a label." Yeah. I mean, the first, the first step is just start, right? Like just, just take whatever resources you have and do something with it. Because a lot of people talk about, Oh, it'd be really cool if I could just, you know, if I could do this and it all, maybe I'll start when I, when I get this or like whenever you perceive to have whatever it is you need to, to, to do it properly. Um, the reality is just start with whatever bare minimum you have and, 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 get it like moving because at that point you're going to open yourself up to a whole bunch of other um, uh, people that might be willing to help you or um, like other attention and momentum that you can build just because you've put your first foot forward. So when people ask me about it, like that's the first thing I say is don't wait until you think you can have every bell and whistle that you think you like need, like with bridge nine's first couple of records, it was just real stock, you know, I mean, we do like black vinyl, like like the first record was like 900 black records, and a thousand, a hundred on green. That was it. And it was like the covers were just black and white, um, you know, real simple, folded in half. We would just like fold them by hand, stuff them in a bag. Um, but there was also at the time back then labels that were coming out with like these full color records and, you know, like big promotional posters and ads and magazines. And I couldn't afford any of that. Um, and if I had been like, oh, I'll wait until I can afford posters to help promote the band or wait, I'll wait until I can afford like to do whatever, you know, bell or whistle that I thought it needed. I n- might not have ever gotten started. I bet a lot of labels like, like you're saying that, and that does seem like a really good uh, point you're saying. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people who have that idea. I want to do the label, but you keep waiting for that. Like, I just got to do this now. I just got to do this. And that keeps building. And then eventually it's five years later. And you know, that label's still a dream. Cause I mean, the, the reality is most people talk about what they want to do and they don't actually do it. So like, you know, it's just, but you have to boil it down to an attainable thing. So um, 
don't blow it up into something much bigger. Just start with something bite-sized and, and go from there. It doesn't have to be a label. It could be, you know, making t-shirts, make, starting your own clothing brand, starting, um, you know, some sort of small business. Uh, just do it as grassroots as you can and then build from there. I, I've always thought that's more interesting. When you look at a brand or you look at like a label that starts at a really grassroots level and then just grows and then reinvests in itself, um, I think that's a lot more interesting than someone who like comes out with shiny full color everything. Oh no, absolutely. It has a, it has a better backstory and everything too. And it's it's kind of nice. It's like we were talking about with like the obtainability. Like Ridge Nine is quite an iconic uh, label, including in the genre. You put out a lot of classics, but you don't start out that you don't. Bridge Nine doesn't start that way. You got to get to the point where you can have that record store and run the label for all these years and like become notable in the scene like you don't just you didn't just wake up and bridge nine that happened no i mean and, and like you start out and nobody gives a shit and like you only know your friends and nobody no, nobody cares about you right like you're you like you you and your friends hang out and you try and do something for your friends um but when i put out my first record there really was i mean a dozen people that i knew in like the connecticut scene back then and like kind of western massachusetts that were doing exactly what i was doing they were just putting out, you know, a record with people they knew um, and just trying to, you know, and I would trade records with those people. Right. Like, you know, back then distribution involved trading a dozen records with somebody doing the exact same thing that you were. But they were just like I was in central Connecticut. They were in Western Mass. So, like, all right, cool. You know, I'll take 12 copies of your record. You take 12 of mine. We're even. And then I'll sell your copy of your record next to mine. So instead of me just selling you know, the one record I put out, maybe I have five records now because I did that with four other people. And then, you know, it helps kind of expand their reach and, uh, and, and expand yours as well. So that's so cool. I mean, I, I enjoy, uh, I really enjoy talking to you. I mean, we talk to a lot of musicians on here, but I like talking on the record label side. I think that behind the scenes stuff is so uh, interesting and also kind of gaining the history of it. Cause again, been doing bridge nine a while so there's like these eras and you know the way the way you started doing things as we've talked about quite a bit with the mail order vinyl resurgence all these things music industry changes quite a bit so nice to uh nice to hear about it all from uh someone who's been there for all of this thank you yeah it, does, it changes a lot and and to be able to still kind of be riding that wave and, and be you know relevant and, and doing stuff is i feel very humbled and, and appreciative well, Chris, I mean, now we're closing this out. I mean, where do uh, people find you online? Where can they stay connected with the label? Um, again, we, you got the new record store. Like any anything else, like let us know what's going on with Bridge Nine. G- give us all that good stuff. So, yeah. So, I mean, we are, I mean, the new store is about 35 minutes north of Boston. So it's convenient if you're going to be in the Boston area. We're also one town over from Salem. And that gets a lot of tourism. People love to go to which city. So, like, if you're there... We're five minutes down the road. Um, there are a bunch of other record stores in the area, so it's kind of something you can definitely make the day of. Um, and we're also trying to do more stuff. I mean, we were building up the inventory for the label, but like yesterday we had one of our artists, uh, this band, War Women, do an acoustic performance here. Um, you know, just kind of a spontaneous thing, just, uh, you know, bring in some people and, and, and hang out and have a like kind of this community building kind of uh, intimate experience. So we want to do more stuff like that too. That's cool. Well, I mean, awesome. We uh, really good talking to you, Chris. And uh, if you're listening to the radio show, we'll probably play you some. Uh, we'll play some stuff from a uh, Bridge Nine, past and present, here in a second. But uh, either way, I'm Anthony Merchant. Been talking to Chris Wren of Bridge Nine Records right here on the Power Chord Hour. <laughs>